Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Plastic surgery. Why do they call it that? Is plastic involved? For that and all the questions you've ever wanted to ask a plastic surgeon, we have Dr. Paul Farringer from Kaiser Permanente in the studio here to share the most recent trends in his area of expertise and also what's right next around the corner. So welcome to The Body Show, Dr. Farringer. Thank you. You've kept me in suspense. Plastic surgery, it's been a term that's been around since, God, I went to medical school, right? And I don't know why they call it plastic either. You got you to gotta tell me that one. Well, it's from the Greek word plastikos, which means to form or to shape or to mold. So basically what we do as plastic surgeons is we are changing the form or shape of the body. And usually function follows form, so a lot of the reconstructive processes are more in that line. But for cosmetic procedures, we're just changing the shape or form purely for aesthetic and appearances. So it comes from Greek, plastikos. Yes, all right. I feel I feel like blown away. Really? That's why? I mean, I had all these theories, but obviously none of them were correct. All right. So when we talk about plastic surgery, what are what does that actually encompass? You mentioned reconstructive. You mentioned cosmetic. What are the most common reconstructive procedures? And then what are them that you do? And what are the most common cosmetic ones? Well, we do a whole variety of uh, both cosmetic and reconstructive procedures, but the the breast reconstruction and facial reconstruction are probably at the top of the list in terms of reconstructive procedures. And and most of the cosmetic procedures have their base in reconstruction because what we do is we move tissues around, and we can move around bone and muscle and cartilage and fat and breast tissue and, and skin, of course. And so the cosmetic procedures involves moving that around too, um, it involves breast enhancement, body contouring, facial contouring, and facial improvements, um, sometimes for aging, and sometimes people just don't like their initial appearance. So really, it's the same kind of areas that you're looking at with reconstructive cosmetic, very similar. Yes. And then there's always other types of procedures. I tend to think, you know, cosmetic surgeries, I always think, what kind of cosmetic surgeries would men have? And I think, well, they could actually reduce breast tissue. It's called gynecomastia. They could also do pectoralis implants. Uh, the latest, I think, well, maybe not. You'll tell me. The latest craze might be buttock implants. There's a lot of, you know, different body types that are being uh, championed in the media, Hollywood, etc. And so now there's been a change in what people might be asking for as far as cosmetic procedures. What are some of the newer technologies that we know have come about as a result of some of the advancements that we see in medicine? Well, I think the biggest, um, or the, the, probably the biggest change, the things that have grown the most in the past year, has to do with fat and fat grafting. And um, So where are we putting it? Obviously, you're taking it from somewhere, right? So yes. you can't really do it on super skinny people if they don't have any fat. So you kind of got to get some fat first, right? I, I can find a little bit of fat in just about everybody. Okay, well, I am not going to argue with that. I think I'd have plenty uh, if I were to do some grafting. So so we take it out of one place. We put it somewhere else. Where are we putting it? Um, I think traditionally the most common place has been the face. You know, when we think of aging, in the old days we used to think in two dimensions. Everything's sagging, so lift it up. But really it's a three-dimensional process. And when you really study the aging face, um, there's areas that gain volume, and then there's more importantly areas that lose volume. And part of that is to restore that volume, especially in the mid-cheek regions, um, the areas around the eyes, 
um, those tend to deflate as you get old. And just by hiking the tissues up and tightening the skin or lifting does not restore that youthful look. So you kind of have to put something else in there. Correct. And so why would we use our bodies? I mean, I think this is almost I'm answering my question, but why would we use our body's own fat to do that? Can't it just be dissolved like the previous tissue was? Or does it last longer? Is it just more natural? Why would we use fat to do that? It is more natural. Our own tissues are obviously the first choice whenever I'm thinking about either reconstructing or for cosmetic procedures. Um, It doesn't really know that it's been moved, actually. That's kind of interesting. You took it from one place, put it somewhere else. Fat doesn't know. It's just going to do its thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, and, and, you know, most of the time that's not a bad thing. Occasionally it can be an issue. Um, So that's one of the um, good and bad things about fat. Um, the best thing about fat is it really looks and feels natural. Well, it kind of is. Yeah. As opposed to what else were we using before that was not all natural? Is that when we're talking about fillers and things? Yeah, there's a lot of fillers, and that that is a booming area of uh, cosmetic surgery. Um, there's newer ones coming out even this year. Um, traditionally, fillers go back. You think of collagen back in the old days, which usually came from cows. Um, wouldn't last very long. You had to do allergy testing before you gave it. Um, that's pretty much been replaced with what we call hyaluronic acid fillers, which is another natural compound, um, and it's found in it's ubiquitous in animals and in, in, in humans. But that's a that that product usually only lasts three or four months in most areas, so that's the big limiting step there. Um, I think our goal is to get something that lasts longer. Obviously, your own fat can last forever if it's done appropriately. Does it ever last forever? Yeah, in certain areas. So if you put fat, like I see, you know, and I think, God, oh, and I've seen some photos, and I'm like, wow, I look much better when I was 20. Uh, who wouldn't say that, right? So you can see that there's sort of like, you mentioned kind of hollowing out underneath the eyes a little bit and some some changes in the cheek area. If you were to put fat in those areas, it would stay. Yes. Yes. Okay, now I want to go have a whole bunch of fat removed to different places. <laughs> I'm like, sign me up already. So so you could put it in that place and then it would last longer. Other, unlike the hyaluronic acid, unlike the old collagen from days gone by, it could actually last a long time. Yeah, it actually, there's, there's several benefits. Number one is it lasts longer. Number two is when you're putting in the fat, you're not just putting in fat or what they call adipocytes, which are fat cells. There are other cells in that mixture when you harvest it. And obviously, we're, and you probably know we're going to go here. It's the stem cells that are in there um, can do other things as well. And so there's been a lot of studies that have shown that the rejuvenating effect of the stem cells um, is, you know, much, in some cases, much more critical than the fat volume itself. So it's a combination effect because you think, hey, I'm just putting fat in there. But in fact, there's other cells and other parts of that tissue that are going as well. Correct. So that it's that combination of all of it that is actually producing that more youthful look. Yes. So where are we going after that? So, okay, if, if technology has helped us with fat grafting and with using our own fat to put in different places, where would what next would come about that you could envision – you know, as we've moved from, from the collagen hyaluronic acid to the fat grafting, what would be next? Well, there's, there's kind of two holy grails of cosmetic surgery. Um, number one would be a shrink wrap, right? So you somehow some device or machine that would just tighten your skin and tissues and restore that elasticity. And no one's invented that quite yet, but there's been lots of attempts at that. 
The other Holy Grail would be a filler that you could just open a package and put it in at your own natural tissues. Um, and both of those things are being worked on. Actually, there's some new work with fat um, that, uh, you know, hopefully in the next couple of years might be something where you could just, you know, get it off the shelf. You could buy fat off the shelf. Well, not necessarily a consumer off the shelf, but a surgeon could get a access surgeon could get through access a through tissue it. bank. Yeah, I'll bank yeah. a whole bunch for you if you promise to put it in places <laughs> I want it. I'll start that now. Yeah. I've yeah. been working on it for years. Well, there's, there's already bone there's already bone banks and That's tendon true. banks, and there's yeah. other banks, and I think uh, you know maybe fat's the next. So thing. that might be the next because there might be some people who would want to have it placed somewhere, and taking it from somewhere else could be obvious for them, and yeah. they might start to have. Uh, would you? Where do you usually take it from? I'm just curious. I mean, so, I would imagine you'd go to the abdomen because you know there might be some more there. But where else would you? You said I can find it on anybody. Where are you looking? Um, you know, I'm, I can almost always find a little bit of fat in the flank area, even in skinny people. But obviously, the abdomen, the thighs, um, you can you can find. You know, we all have a thin layer of fat. Even the skinniest of people have a thin layer of fat just about everywhere. So if you harvest it in a way that you leave behind a nice, smooth, even layer, then you can always borrow a little bit. And for facial procedures, you don't need much. It's just a small volume. Now, if you're talking about for breast enhancement or for you know buttock enhancement, you know that's more of the large volume fat. And yes, you're going to need you know somebody that has a lot of fat to be able to move that type of volume around. Do you think we could ever do stuff with it like we do with other things? You know, they talk about growing tissues and cell culture kind of thing. Do you think we'd ever be able to take out a little bit of fat and then make it multiply and grow more of it in some synthetic lab and then you'd be able to inject more? Or do most people have enough that you really don't have to worry? No, I I think, you know... If you ask me, you know, what I would love to see 100 years from now is, you know, when we're all born, someone takes, you know, a core of our umbilical stock and banks it. And then when we get older, if we need a, you know, whatever, new liver, new kidney, fat for something, you can just, with tissue cultures, you know, grow that particular, you know, stem cell and have it differentiate into what you want. I mean, it sounds science fiction-y, but it actually isn't. Well, at this point it is, but... True, but I could envision, you know, they've talked about if you were to look at banking umbilical cord blood, there are some people for whom if they've done that, and in some cases it might be families who intentionally do that, then that could be used as even, you know, transplant for that individual later. There's cases in the literature where, you know, one sibling has some serious leukemia and they need some kind of a bone marrow transplant. There isn't any match. And it just so happens their parents have a younger sibling. They take some of the umbilical cord blood. If it matches, could be used for the sibling. So we think it sounds crazy, but it is actually done with certain malignancies. And I could envision fast forward, you know, when we say what would be out there, holy grail, that could be that we learn to take stem cells and grow it into something and yeah. then use that. I mean, yeah. it doesn't sound as crazy as it would have sounded 20 years ago. Oh, it certainly could be. And it would probably be a plastic surgeon because we are innovative. And Oh, you're first, taking all the credit from my well, idea already The first there. kidney okay. transplant was performed by a plastic surgeon. Was it really? Yeah, Dr. Murray. And why, why was he messing around with the kidneys? Well, I think plastic surgeons have always been interested in you know, immunotherapy uh, and basically tissue healing. So uh, it was a 
kind of the forefront of plastic surgery. So I mean, I guess it makes sense because, you know, I'll see people and I'll say, if you want to really talk about microsurgery, you know, a lot of plastic surgeons will do carpal tunnel surgery or hand surgery because it's microsurgery. There's a lot of important structures in there and you have to be able to do something in such a small space and be so exacting at it. In plastic right. surgery terms, it may be for cosmetic look, but that same skill that you have to do surgery can be applied to different areas. So, you know, some plastic surgeons do hand procedures because of the microsurgery component. I could envision someone saying, hey, I know a lot about immunotherapy. I know a lot about microsurgery. Let me do this for the kidney, okay? More yeah. power to you. Yeah. But if they start doing what I said, I want some credit. Okay. All right. All well, right. I don't know if I'm ever going to be the one to get that. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Here in the studio today, we are talking about plastic surgery. Why is it called plastic? And what are some of the new technologies and techniques that might be here now and might be coming around the corner soon? We're lucky enough to have Dr. Paul Farringer in the studio from Kaiser Permanente. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting, Sacred Hearts Academy, and Urgent Care Hawaii. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and we're here today talking with Dr. Paul Farringer from Kaiser Permanente about plastic surgery and how this really has a scientific basis to it and what we do to alter how we look or how our body functions often changes a lot about how we feel. I think that's another area of the interest in plastic surgery is a lot of times people may underestimate how important it is for their own self-confidence to feel better about themselves. And in order to do so, they may identify a part of their body that they want to have changed, whether it be a nose, whether it be an eye, whether it be breast area, buttock area, whatever it is, if that were different, they would feel differently. And for whatever reason that's the case, you are the type of surgeon that has the power to make that true. Do you often see that people who have that desire does it fulfill the wishes that they want? Because, you know, I sometimes watch these TV shows, and it seems like when they got what it is they wanted, really, their their life changed. Maybe it was their mental attitude that allowed them to feel like more of themselves, but everything seemed to get better. Am I just seeing the good episodes? Am I not seeing the bad ones? Well, you know, that's a very good point you make, and I think it all has to do, from my point, is is patient selection, but from the patient point, it's weighing the risks versus the benefits. I mean, I think all of us, if we think hard enough, there's something about the way our body appears that bothers us. But at the end of the day, when you think about a surgical procedure to change that, does the, does the benefit outweigh the risk, right? Because there's risk with anything. Um, even with injectables, there's potential risk. So it has to be the patient's own mind, yes, this bothers me enough. I'm willing to undertake this risk because it's surgery, um, yeah, and there's risk involved. So let's talk about some of those risks. What are they? Well, I mean, anytime you make a cut in the skin, you can have bleeding, infection, nerve injury. There's anesthesia risks. Um, there's, other, there's also non-medical risks, right? So that would be anything in kind of the social, you know, financial, you know, things – that belongs on that side of the equation because there's only one thing on the benefit side, how much this bugs you, right? How, how much better you'd feel about yourself if you did that. And at the end of the day, if that outweighs the other, then you should probably do it. And if it doesn't, you, you shouldn't do that surgery. Well, and we talk about trying to, 
you know, often we're now looking at trying to maximize someone's ability to recover from surgery. So there may be some medical conditions that they need to treat very carefully prior to doing any procedure, whether it be cosmetic, whether it be regenerative, whether it be restorative, doesn't matter. And those would be things that come to the top of my list, which would be, you know, control your diabetes if you have it. Don't go have a procedure with high sugars. You're asking for infection. Bacteria love sugar. And if you've got some extra, they're hanging out and they're multiplying like gangbusters in that area. Yeah. So make sure you got your diabetes controlled. High blood pressure, it could be a risk, particularly with anesthesia. Make sure that your blood pressure is controlled because if not, then you could have a risk with your procedure as well. And the other thing that I would think of is make sure you don't have any other medical conditions that could impair your ability to recover. Yeah. And the other thing that patients can control is smoking, right? So That's stop smoking. a big one. I always forget about that because I've never actually lit a cigarette. Like literally, this is I, – I haven't done a lot of things and I'm not regretting them. And this is one of the ones, no regrets, have never lit a cigarette, wouldn't even know how to. So that to me, sometimes I forget to bring that up because you're right. Smoking affects the tissues and it affects the healing. And it affects how your body can recover from things. What do you see about the side effects of smoking in someone for whom you've done a surgery? Well, there's a lot of procedures I absolutely won't do on smokers. Like what? Um, Facelifts, breast lifts, tummy tucks. Um, Whenever you're doing any type of tissue undermining, you're compromising that blood supply. And then you're relying on that peripheral circulation. And, you know, one puff of a cigarette, you kill the tissues. So it's, it's particularly risky. And there's plenty of studies that show... You know, wound healing um, problems, um, infections, threefold times higher than non-smokers. So, you know, one thing at Kaiser, we're really good about um, monitoring uh, all of our patients in terms of smoking and getting them into, plugged into programs to stop smoking. So when I see patients who are, you know, interested in those procedures or are smokers, I can guide them and, and get them to stop smoking. And I, and I actually set that as a goal. When you stop smoking, then we can do this procedure, and that helps. Well, it really does. I mean, I think sometimes when you need to get motivated, but also there's medical reasons. You know, I know that neurosurgeons will not do back surgery in someone who's a smoker. And it's not because we're personally discriminating against smokers. It's because research studies have shown that the the cure rate or the, rather, if you look at it, the failure rate of having a surgery be successful when you have tissue blood flow compromise is not enough to justify doing the procedure. So it's not because we don't like you if you smoke. It's because we want to make sure that you can heal correctly. And it could be disastrous if you go to have a big surgery and then you wind up having tissue loss, whether it be from a plastic surgery aspect or even from any type of surgery aspect. The healing factor is huge. Yeah. it's a, If you're doing an elective procedure, there's absolutely no reason not to optimize your condition ahead of time, which oftentimes means no smoking. Yeah. So that's a way that you can make plastic surgery safe. Where do you see some of the restorative processes going that when we think about doing some of the cosmetic procedures, we've talked about fat grafting, putting it in different places. You also do work that helps people who have, you know, they have disfigurement and some other type of a problem. Where are we going technologically with that? Um, I I think once again, um, the the, the stem cells and, and tissue engineering will probably be something way down the line in the future. But right now we do a pretty good job of, of taking tissues from one part of the body and moving it to another part of the body. Um, and, and I think that, um, you know, if you're doing surgery, 
uh, in a in a safe environment to minimize those risks. I think that that's something that um, is is what we're trying to achieve. Yeah. Now you talked a little bit about what I I love the way you said it. Shrink wrap. I could use some shrink wrap. So do do we see things in technology like lasers playing a role here? Are we going to see some new technologies that might adopt the use of something that we haven't used as much before? Or are we getting more back to basics, like using your own fat to do something instead of coming up with other types of artificial things? Are we seeing a little bit of both? I I think we're seeing both. I think everyone loves technology, right? We all want that magic wand. And I can tell you there's been, I don't know, at least 20 machines that have tried to bend this holy grail of tightening tissues. I, I When I was in private practice, I bought into it. You know, the, the machines are very expensive, usually hundreds of thousands of dollars, and then you have to charge patients lots of money to do it. So everyone's invested in that, right? So the surgeons want to see, oh, yeah, I see the result. And the patients, of course, say, oh, yeah, I think I see it. See it. But at the end of the day, a lot of those it's minimal change, and so no one's really hit that mark yet. But I think we need to keep, you know, looking at that new technology. Every time it comes out, I think we need to embrace it and try it out. Um, but it might come from something like your own tissues. It it very well may come from you know the stem cells or from your plasma. You know, there's a lot of people using plasma now for things. Um, I think we, you know, the nice thing about plastic surgery is if you don't like exactly where it's at now, wait a year because it's going to completely change. Our, our, our profession changes more rapidly than any other uh, subspecialty, I think. Why do you think that is? Um, I think we're innovators um, is the bottom line. Um, and the other line is, you know, n- no one's perfected anything yet. That's why they call it the practice of medicine. Um, but um, I think that, you know, our, our goal um, is to you know continue to improve, and um, and so you know until you until you stop you know once you stop improving you should actually just retire. So does that mean I have to retire already? <laughs> no, you're improving. I'm improving right now. I learned why they said plastic. Well, and I think that's very true. Innovators and also consumer demand. You know, if we look at the way that we treat various medical conditions over time, there's always something new that we're trying to learn to do to control a particular problem. And often it's because that problem has either we've learned more about it, like, you know, cholesterol. I remember when I started in medical school, you looked at a total. And then as time went on, you looked at a total, and then you looked at the good and the bad and triglycerides, and now we're advanced enough to look at various different elements of each one of those subsets to say, what is the real dangerous cholesterol and how do we maximize treating someone to get a produce the best benefits. So it seems like, you know, in every field, there's always some way that we have to look to do things better. And in fact, in your field, consumer demand may actually be our our the way that we look at what we consider to be beautiful now may be different than what it was 20 years ago, might be different than what it is 20 years from now. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the buttocks contouring, um, 20 years ago, there was none of that. And now that's a huge market share, you know, whether it's fat grafting or buttock implants. Um, and certain countries, you know, they do very little breast enhancement surgery. They do all buttock um, and, and torso contouring. Um, so you're absolutely right. Um, and, um, who knows what the, uh, fashion will be, you know, 20 years from now, maybe it's, uh, enhanced earlobes. I don't know. I, you know, it's 
beyond me. I don't know, but I'll I'll prepare for the fat grafting in advance. I'll keep working on that. But uh, so when you think you're you're a young guy, you're going to be in the profession for what another 20, 30 years? Who knows, right? So and if you're not a young guy, you've done a great job on yourself. <laughs> To make yourself look like a young guy. So, you know, when you think of where you'd like to see the profession being as you near towards retirement, where would you like to see it? Like, I'd like to see medicine get much more personalized and to be much more specific to a patient and their needs, to be preventative and proactive instead of reactive. So in in primary care, I'd like to see that we could do more prevention so that rather than waiting till someone has heart disease, we could do something in advance to prevent that from happening. What When you look at plastic surgery, what do you see as potential? Do you think we'll ever be able to say, you know, you're growing, you don't like that part, we'll do a little rearranging here and there and fix it so that as you grow, you'll wind up having this get even better. What what would you see in that in that respect? Um, I do see that, especially on the reconstructive, you know, aspect. I mean, intervening before, um, you know, would would make more sense than intervening after. Cosmetic, um, it's hard to intervene because. Um, Unless Trends talking, change, yeah, that's true. Right. Um, but the thing is, I mean, if you're talking about anti-aging, yeah, if there was a way to somehow, um, you know, not arrest the aging process, but certainly slow it down. Well, sign me up. Right. That That's where I, you know, I would love to find a way that we could, especially when you're talking about skin, um, because the skin elasticity just decreases as you get older, and no one's really found a way to increase that elasticity. Um, and so I would love to see something that would, you know, decrease the the aging process or slow it down to a way that you know certain things are, are you know would be not uh, aging at that rapid of a rate yeah i would love that that's a really good wish for the future i want that right now <laughs> but you know we talk about it and we say what is it what do we all admire and all of us i mean how many times have you looked at a picture when you were younger and said i look so much better when i was younger because of you can see it in yourself immediately you go i look at that sometimes it's i was skinnier sometimes it was you know i had a different facial feature whatever it was so yeah i want to i want to be younger now do you think the sun is really doing us in do you think excess sun exposure you know the only fda approved wrinkle treatment right now is sunscreen which i think I mean, over-the-counter, right? So we're not talking about in your field. But, you know, it's sunscreen. So we can protect ourselves from UVA, UVB rays. Then we find out sunscreen might damage the reef. You know, here we are in the islands. Is the sun really that harmful for us? And if so, what can I safely put on my skin so it stops being so harmful? Well, I think that the, the short answer is yes, the sun is harmful. I think when you talk about patients, though, that are coming in and they're saying, well, my skin is this way you can't blame it all on the sun. I mean, there's certain environmental factors, the sun, smoking, things like that, um, you know, fluctuations in weight up and down that kind of decrease the elasticity of the skin. But probably the biggest thing is genetic, and you can't pick your parents. So um, so that that probably plays a bigger role. You know, when we see these people who are 70 and they look like they're 30, you know, in the, in the, usually it's the TV or the movies, um, that's, that's mostly genetic. Um, so you've just burst my bubble. I'm sorry. 
I'm just thinking of my parents in my head going, in so many ways did I wish the answer didn't yeah. come back to, yeah. you can't pick your parents, it's genetic. But but in terms of aging, though, I do exactly what you say. I'll have my patients bring in a photo, whether it's their high school yearbook photo or you know something from their 20s, and then we can look at them now and look at them then, and that way we can really look and see that three-dimensional change so that we can plan what we need you know, to do to change about that volume or that skin tightness. Um, so we're not making them look different. Just, we're trying to just make them look younger. And I think um, that's where a lot of things go awry. I see people out in the community, and I don't want to say have you know bad work, but they've had work done that doesn't necessarily make them look younger. So They don't look like them anymore. No. And, and the whole idea is to be more of yourself. Right. So I think you know when you're looking to do something like that, you really... Uh-oh. No, work. Okay. When you're looking to do something like that, you want to go to somebody who, um, you know, is appropriately trained and certified, and you want to have it done in a facility that's certified um, because there's no laws or regulations, right? You could be a dermatologist doing facelifts. You could be an OBGYN doing breast augmentation. There's no, you know, laws, so you have to really do your homework when you're looking for plastic surgery. All right, and we've got homework that we're going to do. Make sure we choose the right places and make sure that we don't put ourselves in a position of risk. I want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your expertise on The Body Show. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich, Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We will plan on seeing you again next week on The Body Show. Thanks for joining us.